series today called Four. Uh, not four, as in the number four, but four, as in being for something. Uh, we have relaunched the church last week as Kidderminster Elam, and one of the things that we want to be known as is, is what our mission statement is. And our mission statement, if you didn't know, is we are a church for Jesus, for Kidderminster, and for people. But what does that mean? And so over these next few weeks, we're going to unpack this a little bit more for you. And today I'm going to start off the series by looking what it means to be a church for Jesus. Because you would assume, right, that every church is for Jesus, right? That's, that's the kind of what the principal thing of a church is about, is worshipping God. We kind of just said that. But actually, Neil rightly reminded me yesterday, but not every church is for Jesus. Sometimes churches can be for themselves or for their own little thing that they're doing. In fact, when I was doing some research into this, do you know there's 44,000 different denominations worldwide in the church? 44,000. It's incredible, isn't it? To think that, I mean, I I get confused looking at a 24-pack of crisps sometimes, deciding what flavor to have, let alone 44,000 different versions of church to attend. And they've all got their own little bits of tradition and history and ways of doing things. But ultimately, the thing that connects the church all together is Jesus. It is his church. In fact, he said, I will build the church or build my church upon this rock. It's not that we are called to build the church, but we are his church. And so over this next few minutes, we're going to unpack what it looks like to be a church for Jesus. But I want to give you a story that I read the other day. It's a true story. Um, Back in January 2009 in Saxony in Germany, uh, this young lad was driving his car home. He was 23 at the time. No, it wasn't me. Uh, Before you jump to conclusions, he was speeding. He was going too quick at night down a hill. He missed the turn for the bend. He went straight down the bend into the ditch, and he came out of the ditch, and he ended up in this next picture that you're going to see. He ended up in the second story of a church. It's possibly the greatest seat that he's ever had in a church and the fastest entrance into a church that anybody has ever had, right? Uh, But it's a true story. Uh, He obviously didn't mean to do that, but I show you that because I think sometimes we can attend church with with the wrong motivation. Sometimes we can come to church with the wrong motivation. And I don't want us to come in a car crash moment. I want us to come for the right reasons why we're coming to church. There were three churches in a town. Uh, there was a United Reformed, this is a joke by the way, there's a United Reformed Church, there is a Methodist Church and a Baptist Church. All three in the same town and all in this one summer they all have the same issue, they have mice issue. They are, so they get together, decide right the best way to deal with this is let's have eldership meetings in each one of our churches. And so that's what they do, so they, they, they sit down and they decide what happens. The URC got together and decided that the mice were predestined to be there so they just thought we've got to live with it and dealt with that. Uh, the Methodists decided that they would deal with the mice in the most loving and humane way, like Charles Wesley, and humanely trapped the mice and allowed them to, to go free just outside of the town. Well, they returned three months later. Uh, and then the Baptists probably did the right thing. They all voted the mice as members of the church, and then they baptized them, and they haven't seen them except for Christmas and Easter. So, uh, But if you don't know the traditions of that, just let that go over your, your head. It's clear, you know, a lot of people look at the church and, uh, and they look at the church assembly, they look at the people of the church and they decide if it's optional to be part of it. Uh, they think it's an optional thing that they, they oh, I can be a Christian without going to church. I don't need to go to church. Why do I need the church? In fact, I've heard a lot of people say to me recently, church leaders who are stepping out of ministry saying, I'm disillusioned with church. I don't believe in the power of church. I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've lost the hope of the church. That breaks my heart. 
Because the church is the, the hope for the world, surely. Uh, and it's just Jesus' method for reaching the world. Perhaps maybe it's because uh, the, the church, I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking the big church, has not actually ever been fully in line with what God wanted it to be, what Jesus wanted it to be. Maybe it's forgotten about or we're never doing the true purposes of what the church was meant to be. Jesus said he was going to build his church. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But what does that church look like? What does a church look like that Jesus would attend? It's a question that I've been asking myself over the last few weeks and months as I've been preparing to take this post. I've been thinking, what sort of church would Jesus attend? And what sort of church would he invite people to as well? And so I've been racking my brains over this. I've searched uh, some texts and I've listened to other um, speakers on this subject. And and I'm going to speak from uh, John 17 today because I believe that this gives us a clear picture of the church that God would want to attend and that he wants to be part of. Because it's an important question because if it's Jesus' church, we want to know what he thinks it should look like, right? Not what I think it should look like, not what you think it should look like, because we're all going to disagree on certain things. As soon as I moved the chairs, you know, people didn't like it because I moved the chairs. And I get that because we like what we like and we know what we like. Uh, But my opinion was they needed to be slightly moved. Your opinions, some of you were like, no, they don't. And I understand that. But that's not the important thing, is it? The important thing is, what is the sort of church that Jesus wants to attend? Not what I want to attend or what you want to attend. And so that's what we're going to unpack in these next few minutes. You know, lots of churches will say, I want to be a New Testament church now. And that's great. I've got nothing wrong with that. Or, or I want to base my church on what the early church in Acts did. Again, great. But actually, instead of basing yourself on a New Testament church, because let's look at the church of Corinth for a second. We've looked at some of those letters to the church in Corinth. You don't want to be in a, Corinth, a Corinthian church necessarily. You want to be a Jesus-focused church. And so we need to go back to what Jesus said. And I think that in this prayer that we're going to look at is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament. And he is praying for and anticipating characteristics that would mark his followers, his disciples, in fact, the people who would attend his church. And there are four characteristics, and I'm going to give you them right now off the bat, and then we're going to unpack them later on. I believe that Jesus would attend a church that radiates the glory of God. That he, would, that he would attend the church that is all about giving the glory of God. A church that reveals the truth of who God is. A church that rescues the enemies of God. We're not here just for ourselves to have some sort of little party and go, Whoa, I feel really good because I've been touched by the Holy Spirit and then do nothing with it. We're actually to be filled in order to go out and do something. Stuart reminded us of that last week, that the mission isn't to make Elam famous or to make Kidderminster famous, but to make Jesus famous. And actually, there are so many people who don't know the truth and the goodness of Jesus, and therefore, he would want to attend a church that rescues the enemies of God. And finally, we want to, he would want to be part of a church that rallies around the love of God. Of God. So we're going to unpack that over these next few minutes. So what does it mean simply for us to be a church for Jesus? I think it's this. We are a church who puts Jesus first and others before ourselves. We seek to honor Jesus with our lives. That's what it means to be a church for Jesus. So let's jump straight into this text. It is found in John 17, which is in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament. Uh, It's in one of the Gospels, and uh, the book is all about the documenting the life and ministry of Jesus. And in this chapter, Jesus is praying his longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. He's praying for the future believers, both his disciples, as well as others who will believe later on. And I believe it is in this chapter we discover what kind of church he wants us to be, and also what kind of church he would attend. 
Now, I'm not going to read the full chapter to you because that will take a, a fairly long time and I've got a lot to share with you and we haven't got a lot of time. And as you probably are aware, I quite like to talk because I'm a preacher. So I'm going to try and condense this a little bit. But I would encourage you to go away this week and read this passage, read this chapter. It is Jesus' words. It is his prayer. And actually, sometimes if you don't know what to pray... Do you know what? God gives us the words and you can use this as your prayer as well. Uh, you can use this as your starting block of where you want to dedicate yourself and pray and use these words. So let's get straight into the text in John 17. We're going to go straight from verse 1. And it gets us started with this first characteristic. And the first characteristic of a church that God, Jesus would attend is a church that radiates the glory of God. And here we see this. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted his eyes to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Then verse 4. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then verse 9. I pray for them. That's his followers. I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And then verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. And finally, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in this prayer, in this passage that we read, eight times in this prayer alone, glorify, glorified, or glory is used by Jesus. He uses this word clearly, but what does it actually mean? Because I think a lot of us think about uh, that old song, Glory, Glory, Man United, if you're a Man United fan, or, um, the, glory, you know, or the, the glory of winning something. But what does it truly mean to glorify something? And in this, uh, there, are two, there are two clear meanings, and, and we are given both of them in this passage. Number one is this, the glory of God speaks of the visible expression of God. The visible expression is the presence of God. We, uh, I said when we did our vision gathering that we will be a presence-led church. We are a presence-led church. And over these last few weeks, I've been talking about what it means to, to have the presence of God amongst us, what it means to be filled with his Holy Spirit, is that we would produce fruit out of our lives, good fruit out of our lives. And so in this expression here, it's talking about the presence of God. It's not talking about like a turned down, like semi-skimmed version. It's a full fat, like Jersey gold top, milk type, creamy Jesus. We are talking about uncaffeinated, like the full, the full caffeinated version, the, the full whack of Red Bull sort of situation. This is the sort of God we're, we're talking about. The presence of God is full, it is tangible, and that is what we're talking about in this moment. It is the presence of God that one day we will see when we are in his presence. The presence of God that goes, makes us go, wow, wow, because we've got no other words other than to go, whoa, and it makes you go, woe is me. That is the presence of God that we are talking about here. It's the presence of God that the prophet Isaiah wrote about in the Old Testament when he said this. He wrote, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lifted up the train of his robe and filled the temple and the angels were crying out, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the outward, wow. That's the outward, whoa. Whoa. 
who he is. But then what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me. In other words, like, oh my gosh, look at me compared to, to God. Look at me. That's not a good picture when we compare ourselves to God, but we don't need to because it's woe. It's the, it's the same what Moses cried for. Show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. And one day we will see his glory, the full presence and expression of God's glory. But it also means something else. Uh, it, it, it's, it's our, our application now of what, how we can apply it to our lives. It means to make renowned, to make famous, or to have a good opinion of. It's, it's the word doxa. That's where it comes from, that, that, that word doxa. If you look at verse 4, it says this, I have glorified you. And then I think that's expanded in verse 6. I have manifested your name. This is what Jesus is saying about God. That is, I've pointed to you. I've, I've put the focus on you. I've placed you, God, on the center stage and turned on the spotlight to you. And that's, the, and that's not only what I've done. I've been given to them and then my followers as the goal for their lives is to do exactly the same. So what is the goal of this church? What is the goal of a church that is for Jesus? What should our goal be? It's simply that, that Jesus is pointed to, that God is pointed to, given attention to, made renowned. You might say, well, that's, that's people's opinions about God are made better by our lifestyle. People's opinions of God are made definitely better by our lifestyle. We said last week, didn't we, and the week before, you can preach the gospel always, but use words then when necessary. One of my favorite things that I'm following on social media at the moment is a, is a, a group called Ballers in God. They're, they're, they're footballers, professional footballers. were set up by a young guy called John Bostock, who was at the time the most expensive teenager to be, ever be purchased by a Premier League team. He paid for Tottenham. He didn't have a great time. He's now in non-league with... Um, not Nottingham County, Notts County, but he set this uh, group up to glorify God for all that he does in, in his football career, and others have cottoned on to that as well. So the famous footballer, Brazilian footballer Kaká, has, has joined that. I don't know if you remember when he won the World Cup, he took a T-shirt off, and there was a as a strap line on his T-shirt that he'd written, "I belong to Jesus." glorifying God in all that he was doing. These young professionals, some of them play for the Harriers, uh, and I've got to know them. Uh, in fact, one of the, the, the captain of the Harriers from two years ago got baptized in the Elam Church this year, Cliff. Beautiful. And I got that chance to lead him to Jesus and spend some time with him. It's just beautiful to see him going on in his life with God. And he glorifies God all the time on his social media, and I see that. And I think it's these opportunities when we need, even if you don't use social media, it's to, to bring glory to God. Bring glory to him in all those moments. We do that by our witness. We do it by our focus and our attention and our renown to be on him. This is how great the Father is. This is how great Jesus is. Let's go out and make him famous in our communities by the way that we live so that people's opinions of God aren't that he's this judgmental old guy that sits on a throne and goes, well, you're a terrible human being. You've done this in your life and it's awful. You need, you need to walk around with a bag of shame because that's not who God is or who Jesus is. In fact, he says, give me that shame. Give me that stuff that you're struggling with and let me turn that shame into joy. Let me turn that guilt into, into hope. Let me turn those situations that, are, that are, are despair into joy. That's who Jesus is and we need people to know that. Amen. Because that's who you've met. That's why you're sat here today. That's why you're praising and worshipping Jesus because he's changed your situation. So we do it by our witness with the world. 
and we do it through our worship. We make de- declarations in our worship about God. And that's what's so great about worship because there's a lots of things. But worship is one of those exercises. If it's done right, if it's completely selfless, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him who we worship. It's about Jesus. It's not about, oh, I don't like that guitar. I don't like Neil's voice. I don't like it when this happens or that happens. I don't like it that no one plays the piano. Who cares? No one cares about the song choices. No one cares about the, the music we're playing. What Jesus cares about is our hearts. And our hearts need to be focused upon him. And they need to be worshipping him. Because if it's about us and the way it makes us feel, let me tell you, church, we're doing it wrong. We're not worshipping God. We're worshipping us. And what my needs and what I need and what you need. We're not here to do that. We're here to worship God. So I want to encourage you, when we do it right, it's never about us. It's never about us. It's always about him. In 1928, Evelyn Underhill wrote to the Church of England and said this. In 1928, we are drifting towards a religion which keeps its eye on humanity rather than deity. I want you to hear that. That is, that is in 1928. We are drifting towards a religion that keeps its eye on humanity rather than on deity. I think we've already arrived at that place. I think there are so many churches and there are so many institutions that are keeping their eye too fixed on what other people think about them rather than what Jesus thinks about them. And we need to be caring about what Jesus thinks about us rather than what others think about us. Reputation is important, don't get me wrong. But the reputation that we hold with Jesus is far more important than what it is with anybody else. And so we should always be looking to glorify him. You know, most times and places, activities that are spiritual often become about us. It's, but it's about making him renowned and declaring him. So we've got to declare. So we also glorify God by demonstration. Uh, look at verse 4. I've glorified you on earth. How did he do this? I have finished the works which you have given me to do. So you glorify God by finishing the work that he gave you to do. Now, all of us in this room have a task to do. I don't care how old you are, whether you're the youngest at the back, whether you're one of the oldest in the room, you still have a task to do. Because if you didn't, guess what? You wouldn't be here, you'd be up in heaven. That's that's the result of it. You know, the whole plan of us isn't just like, I believe in Jesus to get to heaven. Because if that was so, we'd be praying for people and they would have the undertakers here taking you out because you'd be received Jesus and you go, right, that's that done, off to heaven. But you are still here because there's a job and a task to do. And it's not just down to the paid members of staff. Yes, this is my vocation that I am called to. But guess what? We are all called to a location and a place and a people to share the good news of what we have received as well. Whether you're a great preacher or not, whether you have abilities and skills or not, you are called to a certain task, to a certain place. You just have to think about Nehemiah and that wall rebuilding. There was a bunch of people doing a bunch of different jobs in the same place, but having a massive effect to change something around. And I want to say, this is what this church is about. It's for Jesus to go out and share the good news of what we have received, right? It's not to sit in here and just be become fat Christians. We've got to we've got to get in here. This is the gym to be out there to be working it out. And so we do it through our witness. And if it's done right, if it's true worship, then it's all about him. So you might think to me now, right, well, I don't get it. I'm not sure what 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 job there is. Listen, there are plenty of jobs for you to do. 
whether you want to do them directly through the church, we sent out a list of voluntary roles in this church that you can do, or you just want to be out sharing the good news with your mates in your workplace or in your schools or wherever you are with your neighbours. Being Jesus to people is the call of God upon your life. It's to love people and to show them and to glorify God through your lifestyle. You and I have been given this task, and until we get to heaven, we need to continue to pursue it. We glorify God by demonstration, so the church Jesus would attract, sorry, attend is a church that has focus, that radiates the glory of God. Second one is this. The church that Jesus would attend is one that reveals the truth of God. Verse 6 says this. I have manifested or made great your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have, ma- have known all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them to, to them the words which you have given me. They have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. So you follow what he's trying to say here. Jesus received from his father the words of truth. Jesus passed those words of truth on to his followers who received them, who wrote them down and passed them down and down and down until we received them. I have received your words. I have declared your words. They have received them. Any church that Jesus would attend must be a church where the word of God is spoken. The word of God is preached and not opinions of men are preached. And I want to say, if I've ever preached just my opinions, then you can correct me any time. But hopefully, you will hear that I'm just preaching what Jesus is pushing into my heart and pushing back out into us as a community. Because it's not about me. Anything of me should fall to deaf ears, but everything of Jesus should impact our lives and changes and cause us to move. It's interesting to me that how high on the list the word of God is to Jesus is up there on the list of important things about those who came to follow Christ and gather together as a church. It is the word of God. And you know why? Because it's the source of all truth. That's why it's the source of all truth. Jesus commissioned his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Listen, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded. So here's Jesus praying for the future church, praying for it. And what he prayed for What he wants, what's high on the list, is to radiate the glory of God, to reveal the truth of God, and incidentally, you turn to the book of Acts, which is the playbook, isn't it, for all the early churches, and you turn to the book of Acts, and we find out his prayer is answered. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this famous passage, and we'll look at it at a later date, it says this, and they gave themselves continually to the apostles' doctrine. Number one, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Those four things, first on the list, apostles' doctrine. Why? Why didn't it say, and they gave themselves continually to loving each other? Why isn't that number one? Why isn't it that they gave themselves continually to singing? Why isn't it that they continue to, to, to community improvement? Listen, I'm all for those things. If you know me, you know that I, my heart is for the community. I love worship. I, I love praying. I love all this sort of stuff. I love hanging out with people and seeing people get healed. But here's the thing. It's the truth. It's the word that transforms us. It's the thing that informs us, and it's the thing that directs our path. He, he didn't say these things, and it's because the word of God teaches us how to do all of these things. 
You want to know how to, to love people? Read your Bible. The Bible tells you exactly how to do it. You want to know how to be involved in the community? The Bible tells us exactly how to do that. How to pray? The Bible gives us those parameters. Raise a family? The Bible does that. It is the source of all things we do. In fact, it's the source of most things that researchers discover and go, oh, we've come up with this new idea. Guess what? It's probably in the Bible already. Uh, what I love about my wife is that she is a super, super, super intelligent person, but she would never declare it to anybody. Uh, but I see her. She's currently doing another postgraduate in, in some sort of counselling or, I don't know, she's, she's so smart, it's untrue, it goes over my head a lot of this, but she's an expert in mental health and in child's mental health in particular. And sometimes she will come and she'll go to these conferences and people say, we've discovered this new thing that we need to do that will help people's mental health. And she's like, Haha, I read that like a few years ago in the Bible. I think Jesus said it like 2,000 years ago. Listen, the font of all truth is in the word. I'm not saying dismiss what the medical experts say because it's great that they're discovering it and repackaging it for us to, to be palatable for, for people to take on board. But it's already in the scriptures for us. So we will be a, a, a church that focuses on the word. A church that... Any church that makes it about God and makes it about his truth, two things will happen. First of all, joy. Truth produces joy. Verse 13, Jesus is praying again. Now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they, they begin again, his followers, the disciples, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus spoke of this truth there. And his followers received the truth. And as a result, they were joyful. Even though the world hated them, hassled them, they were joyful because they had the truth. So how can a person have joy? We've, we've covered this over the last few weeks. How can you be joyful even when the world hates you, when things are falling down around you? When you receive the truth of who Jesus is and the acknowledgement of who he is, you suddenly aren't after the pursuit of happiness, but the pursuit of contentment in Christ. And when Christ is filling your heart, let me tell you, you will feel contentment above all else. When my brother died uh, four years ago, I've never felt so rocky in my faith if I'm honest with you he was a minister he was doing great works for Jesus he has a young family they're here today they're upstairs with my family and they they were left with nobody we were we watched him die I was in the room with him I couldn't understand it but yet I still felt a sense of joy I watched him die and he had a sense of profound joy in his life why? Because he was Christ-centered and Christ had filled his heart and he had contentment through Christ. And I want to encourage you that even if you're going through a difficult time, when we know the truth of who Jesus is, we can find joy in those difficult moments. It doesn't mean that you have to walk around and skip and go, oh, I'm happy and everything's brilliant. But joy is something deeper. It's more profound. It permeates and it, and it seeps out of us. And people go, wow, there's something different about this person. And do you know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit. Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So here we go. Um, Jesus spoke the truth and his followers received the truth. And as a result, they were joyful, even though the world hated them. And we spoke about this, like I said, over the last few weeks. And Psalm 119 says this, Happy are the people who follow the law of the, the, law of the Lord. Happy are those who obey his decrees and search for him with all of their hearts. Uh, there was this 
really interesting bit of research that was done by Tyndall House Publishers, it's a Christian publisher in the US, and they did a poll and published the results. And they discovered that after their research, and I quote, 90% of Bible readers, frequent Bible readers, which means they read it once a day, feel at peace all or most of the time, as compared to those 58% who read it less than once a month. It's really interesting, 90% of people, no matter what they were going through, were feeling peace because they were reading the good news of Jesus. 92% of frequent Bible readers report knowing a clear purpose and meaning for their life, whereas only 69% of infrequent Bible readers report the same. So let's just, let me just tell you, the church that Jesus would attend would be one where there is joy producing truth, and that is declared as Jesus prayed for. Finally, it's not only joy that it will produce, but it produces holiness. And we are called to be a holy people. We're called to be set apart. Verses 15 says this, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, that is a massive religious sounding word. Sanctified, sanctification, don't lose that word. It's a good word. And understand what it actually truly means. It means to be holy, to be different, to be separated from the wrong of the world, from sin, from our sin, from our stuff that we do wrong. It causes to be separated from it. Now, how does that happen? How does that work? How does truth, the word of God, produce holiness? Well, when you're exposed to it, something happens. And when I tell you, you'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. That happened to me. Maybe, maybe it happened to you this morning. Maybe it happened to you last week. I don't know, but it happens to me too. Sometimes, right, you read the Bible and you'll read a verse and you'll go, oh my gosh, I needed to hear that this morning. Wow. Or you'll read it and you'll go, wow, that was heavy. And here's the thing. It's comforting to those who need the comfort at those moments, but it's also confronting to us who need confronting in our lives, the sin that we hold on to, that we try and keep in our secret little places because we think no one's going to know about it. We all do it. But you know what? The word, the truth, it confronts us and it confronts that sin face up and then we have to deal with it with the Father. But then he also comforts us when we need the comfort as well. As one person put it, the word of God, sometimes it comforts the afflicted and at other times it afflicts the comfortable. And you could probably sit there and go, yep, I've been there. I've been the comfortable. But I've also needed to be the comforted as well. So we learn to glorify God. Learn to glorify God. Declare it first. Listen, when we, when we gathered together in worship and praise, it, it's acceptable to declare the greatness of God. And we learn to respond to the word of God, all of it, not just in part of it, all of it. And it produces joy. And it will produce holiness in us. And we want to become a holy people. And that's what Jesus wants for his church. Because a church that Jesus would attend would be one that radiates the glory of God and reveals the truth of God. The next two, I just want to fly over these. And I'm going to unpack these later on in the year a bit deeper. But I just want to fly over them so you're aware of them a little bit. The next two will deal with our relationship to the outside world and how we relate to unbelievers. And one thing we must never become, and that is we must never be so heavenly minded that we're no, we're no earthly good. And I know the church has become accused of that over the, over the years, that we're thinking only about heaven and the future. We're not thinking about the responsibilities that we have here. I think that we can become earthly good 
and heavenly minded. But how we define what is earthly good will vary, and I'll probably touch on that in a couple of weeks' time. I think, like I said, we can do these two things together. I heard this story about a guy who went to New York City. He was walking by a shop and he read this sign. It's a Chinese laundrette. And he thought, oh, good. I've got to get some laundry done. I know where to come. So the next day, he turned up with a bag of washing, dumped it on the desk. The bloke said, what's that? He said, it's my washing. He said, why are you bringing it here? He said, it says Chinese laundrette. And he said, have you read all the other signs? And he went back out, read all the other signs. And he said, do you make signs? And he said, yeah, we're a sign-making shop. (laughs) (laughs) He see, he saw a sign among all the other signs in the windows that said Chinese laundry. And they were making the signs, not the laundry. And And I share that with you because I think church can send out a false signal. People with dirty lives, sword lives, can come to our places and find that the cross is just a sign. It's on the inside, up front in the church, or it's on the top, outside on the steeple. But they discover that the people within it have no clue as to how to deal with the people with soiled lives. And how to disciple them, and how to move them from one place to the next. So let's just talk about the church that Jesus would attend. He would attend a church that rescues the enemies of God. Now please, as I just say this quickly, let me just help you understand what I say by that. It's because Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. That's what it says. And the Bible indicates clearly that those who oppress the God are the enemy at, 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 at war with God. So that means that they're enemies with God. So I was an enemy of God at some point in my life. We probably all were at some point in our life. It sounds a very extreme thing. But we, therefore, must be in the business of rescuing those who are currently enemies of God. And that is anybody who would not call themselves a follower of God. That is what the big call of our lives is, to get them into a place where they're no longer enemies, but they are friends of God. In, in verse seven, uh, 14 of this passage, Jesus prays this, I have given them, his disciples, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Now, you would look a bit further down in verse 20, along with that. I do not pray for these alone, that is, these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. There is pretty obvious that Jesus commissioned his followers, us, to go out and to be sent out. He anticipates their evangelism. He anticipates the success of their evangelism, the word sent from apostle. We get the, the word, so the word apostolo, we get the word apostle. It means to go out on a mission or to be set out, commissioned to do a certain work. Guess what? We're all apostles. When people say, oh, I think I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor, I'm an apostle. But we're all apostles. We've all been given a task to go out and do it. You're an apostle. I'm an apostle. We're all saints. So get with the program here. You've got a task to do, and that is to go and share the good news of Jesus with these people. So just as Jesus came into the world and was on a mission of redemption from his father, Jesus says, I send them out as well. He sends you out, sends Kidderminster Elam out to do this as well. Who will believe through their word, or a better translation, through their testimony. We all have a testimony. So whether that by testimony is one uh, is one on one, or whether that testimony is a mass evangelism, 
God can ordain those as means by which he brings people to himself. Here is the mega point that I want to make. Church was never become just a bless me club. It's not about, oh, can you just bless me this week, pastor? Just need a good blessing. Great, you can do that anytime you want on your own with Jesus. Jesus, I need this. It should never just be a bless me club, a pick me up a club, a fix me club, an entertainment or whatever you want. It, it should be, though you should be blessed and you should be helped and grown, all this sort of stuff. It should never just be about us. It should always be about those outside. The church is the only society, as one person put it, that exists for the benefit of the non-members. That's part of our calling. It's part of the envisaging of the future of this church, one that would rescue the enemies of God. The fields are ripe for harvest. In other words, guys, look around you. Look around your streets, your communities, your friends, your family. I've got family in this town that are crying out for Jesus. And I have been commissioned to reach them, my family. I'm not just talking about the thousands that turned football yesterday. I'm talking about those people that I care about, that I know have it's easy access. There's many of us that have this. Guys, we are called to reach the lost. But it can't often happen to any church or organization because sometimes we turn inwards and even though Jesus told us to go into the world, somehow we have heard that it means to come to our church. So we, we have a building, that's great, and we say to the world, come. But we need to show Jesus to these people. We need to show Jesus to these people. I know I've ran over a little bit, but I just want to finish this today. There is a healthy pattern to follow here, guys, and it's this. Saved, serving, and sent. And I've had the privilege of seeing people come forward. I get to pray with them and receive Jesus. I've watched them grow, and then they serve one another, and then they come to a place where they want to be sent out onto the mission field and what they're doing. Churches either turn inwards and become a religious club. It's all about my club. It's about what we do. But that's introverted Christianity, and we're called to be extrovert with our Christianity. And the other point about that is that you can turn into a false identity, and we're not a false identity. We are Jesus' church, and I want to encourage you to be reminded of that. I believe we can do both. We can vertically worship Jesus and be in the right relationship with God, but then horizontally we can serve the world, and we are called to be both. This is a huge expectation. The best way, the primary way we can serve the world is to preach to them. The message of life rescues them, takes them to heaven. Because if we just hand out band-aids and food and stuff like that, and guess what? All we are is just a charity. But we're never called to just be a charity. It's, it's, it's word and deeds. It's faith and action. And this is what we are called to do. We can love God with all our hearts and declare and proclaim it and then give them in the name of Jesus plasters and bandages and food and help and agenda with all this sort of stuff. John Stott said this, if all churches had been faithful to this, the world would long ago have been evangelized. So how can we do this? How can we rescue the world? Well, there's three really simple, quick things that I'm just going to say. We need to be growing, growing in our preparation. We need to go, so we need to know, we need to know the truth. We need to grow in our preparation and we need to go as we are sent. And then finally, I just want to skip ahead a little bit because I've realized I've ran right over time and I apologize for that. God wants to attend a church that rallies over the love of God. We want to be a church that rallies around the love of God. We want to be a church that, that declares the love of Jesus. 
Augustine put it the be- this, this way. He said, they, they said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity and love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, and in all other things, charity and love. We are the body of Christ. We are going to fall out. There are things that we're going to disagree on, and that's okay. But you know what? We need to disagree on those things that don't really matter. I don't care if you disagree that I've painted something a different color. I don't like it when people fall out of me, but if I paint it a different color, well, so what? Does it change you going to heaven? No, it flipping doesn't. But what changes you going to heaven is when we disagree on how we get there and we get there through being a church for Jesus and focusing on his heart and sharing that good news with other people. I want to say this, the love of God isn't just about us all skipping around and holding hands, singing come by our and looking perfect. It's far deeper than that. It's about unity through his spirit. If you want to be a spirit-led, spirit-filled church, then we will be, but it doesn't mean like putting our hands up and falling over every five minutes. That's part of it maybe. I don't know. But I think the big part of it is this, is that we are unified in the spirit of who Jesus is on his mission with his church, him at the head of it. I've gone way over, and I'm going to unpack some of that. I've got loads more text that I'm going to unpack in a couple of weeks. John's preaching next week about what it means to be a church for Kidderminster. And I'm going to unpack some more of this when we look at what it means to be a church for people. Thank you so much for listening to me this morning. I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to sing one, one song, and then we're going to have... We're not going to sing a song. Neil doesn't want to sing. Let me just pray, and then we're going to have some community time because we're all tired and hot. Jesus, I thank you this morning that you have called us to be a church for you. That you are the head of this church, Lord Jesus, no matter what we do. Whether we're doing kids' work, we're doing community work outside, or we're preaching and worshipping you, it's all about you, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would become this church that radiates the glory of God. One that reveals the truth of God and, 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 and that produces joy and holiness. One that rescues the enemies of God and one that rallies over the love of God. Father, I pray that anybody here today who has never accepted you as their Lord and Saviour, Jesus, I pray that they would come and speak with me this morning and be bold and receive him in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. I know it's a bit of an abrupt end.